0: Welcome to the Low Countries Radio, a collaboration between Republic of Amsterdam Radio and the Low Countries website, celebrating Flemish and Dutch history and culture, and its impact on the world today.
1: Welcome to the Low Countries Radio. My name is Joe Wegasani. There are few landscapes as immediately identifiable as those of the Low Countries. Calling it a landscape is problematic, however, as it could just as easily be called a waterscape. The meandering rivers, the green blocks of soggy land separated by canals and ditches and a row of dunes down the coast, all lend to an overwhelming understanding of why one of the modern nations that make up the region is called the Netherlands. They most certainly are low. The name Flanders derives from a very old German word, Flom, meaning flood. Floodlands. The Low Countries are comprised of a huge wetland, a vast river delta, known as the rhine Meuse scheld Delta, a place where land and water meet and interact. As such, the societies which developed here have often reflected their engagement with the rivers, which flow from faraway mountains, and the seas, which consistently pummel the coastline with an ancient ferocity. Living on these waterlogged lands has presented them with opportunities for trade, urbanization, agriculture, and much more. But it has also meant living under the constant threat of devastating and deadly floods. These events have been scarred into the psyche of the societies in the region, and their impacts resonate through to the present day, like a kind of collective, multi-generational trauma. There is a concept in popular psychology that in processing trauma or grief, one goes through five stages. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Although this idea is oversimplified and doesn't take into account the wide-ranging emotional experiences that individual humans go through, we still think it provides a pretty useful framework through which to look at how collectively and over a span of time The peoples inhabiting the Low Countries have dealt with the cultural and social trauma of repetitive flood disasters that have drowned entire towns, swept away large tracts of land, and taken hundreds of thousands of lives. In this episode of the Low Countries Radio, we are going to go through these five stages, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance, and take a look at how they can be applied to the relationship between humans and water. In this part of the world and to help us flow down this river let's once again welcome julian
0: smith to the microphone thanks joe so the first stage of the process is denial how have people in the low countries denied that they have a problem with water well before we get into that we need to understand the geographic conditions in which these societies began developing Around 200,000 years ago, most of northwestern Europe, including the North Sea, was covered in thick ice. Powerful glaciers pushed eastwards, creating the hills and valleys which today straddle the border between Germany and the Netherlands. When the climate warmed, those valleys then hosted rivers, which started in the Swiss mountains and fed out into the North Sea. Around 8,500 years ago, melting ice had caused the sea level to rise enough so that Great Britain became separated from the continent. What is now the Netherlands and Belgium transformed into a coastal region, with sand dunes running north-south along the western edge. Through the dynamic processes of winds and tides, the sea and land were in competition with each other, constantly shifting the coastline. Peat moss started to grow in the wet, soggy, low-lying areas, creating a landscape known as a fane, or fen, The fen eventually grew high enough that it became disconnected from the groundwater. This is a problem for most mosses, but not for a special type, my personal favourite type of moss called sphagnum. Sphagnum continued to grow, filling and overflowing the landscape, similar to a muffin top expanding out of a cake tin. By the first millennium BCE, as various groups of people began to colonise these coastal regions, it was upon this undulating, rolling, spongy sphagnum which they settled. But they had to deal with the slight issue of tides, which saw the sea come in and out twice a day, and which sometimes expressed themselves with utter devastation. This is where our first stage of the process, denial, comes into the story. One of the earliest methods humans came up with to deny the issue of rising tides was the construction of terrapin, or weirdin, which are best described in English as dwelling mounds. These were first built in the area of today's Friesland. They were human-made hillocks upon which settlements could be built above the reach of the high tide. The first Terrapin were built about maybe 500 BCE. If there was a flood, farmers would protect their cattle on the higher safety of the hill and simply wait until the water receded. When the water level dropped, the animals could once again graze on the land surrounding the mounds. As the sea level continued to rise over the centuries, so too were dwelling mounds enlarged, both in height and width. Some towered up to 15 metres over the rest of the land. Dwelling mounds have been found along the North Sea coast, with the southernmost one being found in the West Flanders village of Leffinger. Analysis of animal bones found in archaeological digs there suggests that this dwelling mound was inhabited from the 7th to the 11th century, and that farmers there herded sheep in the salt marshes of the intertidal zone. By the 10th century CE, the territories of the Low Countries were dotted with small fishing villages, farming settlements, churches, abbeys, and monasteries. Around this time, the first primitive dikes or levees, were built in the coastal areas, when inhabitants joined dwelling mounds together to deny the flooding altogether. The sediment deposits from the inundations meant that these were extremely fertile lands, which is why people bothered to live here at all. In order to utilise the land, however, these settlers needed to drain the swamp. Up until the 12th century, Flanders was protected by a series of ancient dunes. The urbanisation that took place from the second half of that century involved the construction of harbours, forts, towns, and churches on the dunes. All of these projects dug into the land, weakening the dunes. As Beatrice Augustein put it in a 1995 essay in the Historische Geografische Zeitschrift, quote, In the beginning of the 14th century, sea walls had to be built in some locations to take over the protective function of the dunes. Furthermore, violent northwesterly storms got a grip on the dune landscape and precipitated the irreversible degradation of the dune landscape until, by the late 14th slash early 15th century, little more was left but the small, unstable drift-sand dunes which we still know today. End quote. analysis leaves one in little doubt that it was human activity that caused the erosion of the dunes. Elsewhere in the Low Countries, under initiatives by powerful bishops, monasteries, counts, dukes and landholders, pioneering peasants would be allocated a block of land along a river or creek and be given the right to reclaim the area behind it out to a certain distance. They would wade over the spongy surface, bouncing around and cutting out large blocks of peat, which is partially decayed sodden sphagnum. This would create long parallel ditches which ran at 90 degrees down to the river. By puncturing this sponge, water from the bog would then drain out of it and into those ditches, now coursing towards the river and onto the sea. The landscape they created by doing this was one of long skinny strips of land called Ukkas, each belonging to a different family, all of them the same length as defined by the administration with water at either side of them. Acres neatly parcel up the countryside, even to this day. Unfortunately, digging peat out of the swamp was a double-edged sword for the increasing population. In the short term, removing peat created farmable land, and the peat was also a valuable fuel commodity. It burns really well. Removing so much peat, however, had the long-term impact of allowing oxygen to seep into the fen below and cause it to rot. As a result, that great rolling carpet of lush green bog began to deflate. Ever since, the land has been sinking. In combination with rising sea levels, this has resulted in periodic catastrophes in the forms of massive floods. The popular saying goes that God created the world, but the Dutch created the Netherlands. A more accurate one might be that God created the Low Countries, but the Dutch sank them. In order to combat the killer combo of sinking land and rising sea waters, in the 10th and 11th centuries, the first larger dikes were created in the coastal areas of Flanders, Zeeland, Holland, and Friesland, thereby creating the first polders. A polder is an area of land which is surrounded by embankments and which lies lower than the water around it. Projects like these could never be achieved through a solo effort. They had to be communal ones. Various smaller dikes were joined together in West Friesland to create a coherent system called the West Frisian Encircling Dyke. Construction was completed around 1250 and turned West Friesland into an encircled, protected area between the North Sea and the Zaudersee. During a gigantic deluge called the St. Lucia's Flood of 1287, up to 80,000 people were said to have been killed in Holland and Friesland. Even accounting for this to be a huge exaggeration, there is no doubt that this must have been a traumatic event to live through. Everyone who survived in the affected areas would have known someone who had died. During this event, the people of West Friesland were mostly spared. They had, after all, built this encircling dike and denied the worst of the water. For now. The scale of these works required regional cooperation, and out of this need, the first regional public bodies were created, known as Warterschappen or Hochheimraden in the north, or Wartringen or Polderen in the south. These bodies managed the construction and maintenance of water management systems, such as dikes, dams, and ditches. At the head of these hydro-hierarchies was a dijkgraf or a dike-reeve, there was also a college of judges for judicial dyke-related matters, such as handing out fines for lack of dike maintenance, as well as an administrative body that established who would play which role in all of the necessary work. Landowners were primarily responsible for dikes around their property, and the responsibility for commons was shared accordingly. The dyke reeve would visit landowners three times a year, once in spring to see what repairs needed to be made, once in summer to see whether those repairs had been done and to levy fines if they hadn't, and once in autumn to see what repairs had to be made before winter when most storm surges happen. If the landowners could not afford repairs, the dyke reeve would often loan them the money at high interest, making it a pretty profitable public service to be in. Despite all of this cooperation and the short-term solutions, Living in the Low Countries in the pre-Industrial Age was perilous in the long term, and there were regular flooding catastrophes. The dikes and embankments that protected the coast lined the channels through which water flowed from rivers into the sea. When, during a large storm, water was pushed from the sea back up those channels, those dikes would necessarily stop the water from doing what it wanted to do, which was to spread out evenly over the supratidal zone, the bits of land which would be flooded during storm surges. You know, floodlands. Flanders. Instead, the constrained volume of those narrow channels hemmed in by dikes meant that water would be forced into them, rising to even higher levels than they otherwise would, and thus increasing the pressure that those dikes were required to withstand. On the occasions that they failed to withstand this increased load and breached, water would catastrophically flood into those sinking lands behind them which had previously seemed safe. Those who had been living in denial were thus reminded that the dangers of water were an ever-present and still huge problem that their form of denial, walls, only made worse over time.
1: Moving on from denial. The next step in the process is anger in terms of the psychology of grief this is often used to describe the phase when somebody gets angry or frustrated at the situation they are facing and lashes out at those around them while it is problematic for us to try and play armchair psychologists for diverse groups of people who lived hundreds of years ago it seems pretty safe to say that after any huge flooding event The people most affected by it must surely have been angry after watching their homes, belongings, and entire livelihoods be washed away. Especially when these weren't just one-off events, but happened with some regularity. Sure, human intervention in the landscape through the building of dikes and draining of peatlands behind them had provided the people in the Low Countries with space to live, but it had placed them in this very dangerous position. By the 12th century, the waters had risen and the land had sunk enough for flooding to be this regular part of life. In the 14th century, subsidence in the peaty areas had become so intense that the land inside the polders actually dropped to below sea level. According to Professor Richard Toll in A Concise History of Dutch River Floods, the 12th century was, quote, characterized by a series of heavy sea surges that greatly altered the shape of the coast the number of flood reports gradually increased during the 13th century, and in the 14th century, river floods became a recurrent phenomenon and an acknowledged problem. Quote. On top of this, the times were generally chaotic. There were a series of plagues which regularly wiped out large chunks of the population, and a long series of wars, such as the Hundred Years' War or various urban revolts in Flanders, factional civil wars in Holland, Friesland, Groningen, and Utrecht, etc. All of this meant that maintenance of those early, rudimentarily constructed dikes wasn't necessarily priority number one, and as such, they were prone to bursting. So, in the 14th and 15th centuries, the most vulnerable coastal provinces, being Flanders, Zeeland, Holland, and Friesland, experienced a series of catastrophic flooding disasters, During this time period, the societies we are talking about were hegemonically Catholic. As such, the events were usually named after the feast day of whichever saint was being celebrated around the time that the disaster struck. It is for this reason that if you look up a list of floods in the Low Countries, it will feel like you're leafing through a who's who catalogue of saints. There's the St. Stephen's Flood of 838, St. Michael's Flood of 1014, St. Juliana's Flood of 1164, St. Marcellus' Flood of 1219, St. Lucia's Flood of 1287, St. Marcellus' Flood again in 1362, also known way more creatively as the Great Drowning of Men. There were the St. Elizabeth's Floods of 1404, 1421 and 1424, the list really does go on and on. As Tim Soons, a Professor of Ecological History at the University of Antwerp, wrote of this in his 2009 article, Van de Graaf Jansdijk tot de grote Polderboer," Quote, As a memory strategy, the designation of all these disasters by a saint's name is significant. The disasters are thus referred to as superhuman phenomena, the cause of which only God knows. End quote. This persistent, recurrent flooding was therefore widely seen as an act of God, a God who could sometimes be very vengeful. Flood disasters were often interpreted as being a punishment from God, brought down upon sinful people. An example of this arose out of one of the most famous flooding events, not just in the Low Countries, but across the entire North Sea region. The All Saints Flood of 1570, indeed, this flood was so dramatic, they couldn't picture one saint. They just said, all of them. On the evening of the 1st into the 2nd of November, 1570, a huge storm battered the North Sea, creating a surge of water which wreaked havoc along the coast from Flanders all the way north to Norway. An entire island named Vulpen was washed away in Zeelandic Flanders. Dykes broke and the inflowing waters flooded huge areas of Friesland, Groningen and Holland, with the death toll estimated to be around 25,000 people. But probably the most infamous casualty of this flood was an area in Flanders along the western Scheldt called Seftinger, where a castle and four villages were completely buried under mud and sludge. A myth arose in the 16th century about the destruction of Seftinger, which we will now tell in a truncated,
0: translated version. Quote, The land along the Skelt River was beautiful and fertile, with many lovely villages, the most important of which was Seftinger, with a castle and two churches. But the increasing wealth perverted the inhabitants and corrupted them with vanity and pride. The thresholds of their homes, and even the shoes of their horses, were made from gold. After they used sticks and dogs to chase away poor people, God sought vengeance. There were wondrous omens and admonitions about pending punishment, but their malice had made them deaf and blind. On All Saints' Day 1570 came an impetuous inundation which flooded into the rich polders. And so was Seftinger swallowed by the sea, with all her houses and inhabitants. Only the towers remained above the sea until they too sank into the water. Sometimes, one can hear the bells still tolling, as a warning to us all. End quote. Today, the area remains a
1: waterlogged nature reserve, known as the Drowned Lands of Sefting. An angry god might well have been responsible for the All Saints Flood of 1570, but Seftinger would actually not meet its final watery demise for another 14 years. This time, the deluge was brought on not by a supernatural power, but a much more human anger. It was deliberately inundated in an act of war. Over time, the inhabitants of the Low Countries realized that the destructive power of water could sometimes be used to their advantage. Just as dikes had been raised to protect themselves, So too could they be pierced, so that violent disaster could be deliberately brought upon somebody else. Intentional or artificial flooding became a military tactic, which has been used on numerous occasions to ward off an invading army. It was often used as a last resort, however, because these acts of deliberate sabotage harmed not only enemy soldiers, but also laid waste to villages and the countryside in the inundation zone. It would take years of effort to repair any damage done, and some areas would indeed never be recovered. The only thing that stops me from comparing it to a nuclear option is that it did happen more regularly than one might reckon. In fact, it was enough of an occurrence that in 1957, the director of a Vaterstadt, the nord von fund wurner Jos Leeper wrote an entire book about it called Kunstmatige Inundaties in Maritime Flanderen. Artificial flooding in maritime Flanders, 1316 to 1945. It's a very niche topic and a pretty broad span of time. But if you read Dutch, I highly recommend inundating yourself with it. In this book, Leaper cites measures taken around Newport in 1135 to prevent strategic flooding, showing that it was already a concept in the 12th century. Using chronicles, he puts the date of its first recorded use in Flanders as being in 1383. On that occasion, it was actually an English force retreating from the French who preached the dikes around Dunkirk, and as a result, quote, Immeasurable plains were given over to the water. End quote. A little over 50 years after that, in 1436, another English captain, the Duke of Gloucester, was rampaging with a force in the same area, having taken and wreaked havoc on towns from Dunkirk heading north in the administrative region of Verne, about 50 kilometers southwest of Bruges. Quote, All necessary measures were now taken to prevent the advance of the enemy army. This is how the new Endowment Lock in Newport was opened and the meadows along the Iso were flooded. End quote. Those who made the decision to flood the land would have been well aware of how devastating such an action was. Water was also used in anger during the early stages of the Eighty Years' War, which became the Dutch War of Independence, taking place roughly from 1568 to 1648 in the late 16th century the rebelling Dutch provinces were still in an existential crisis against the Spanish Empire. During the Spanish sieges of both Alkmaar in 1573 and Leyden in 1574, William the Silent, Prince of Orange, ordered the preaching of dykes to let the water put paid to the Spanish, as well as allow rebel fleets to float in and supply the cities. During the siege of Antwerp in 1584, William's son Maurits used the same tactic – piercing dikes around the town to try to flush out the Spanish army. It was this action which proved to be the final nail in the coffin for the drowned lands of Seftinger, sending them forever to a watery grave. Despite using the water in anger on this occasion, the Spanish were better prepared. Despite this inundation, the Spanish were able to capture Antwerp in 1585, and that whole area became the front line in the war. In his essay, Flooding in River Mouths." Human-caused or natural events? Dutch geographer Adrian de Kraker wrote of these inundations, The impact of these flooding events on the landscape were without precedent, because even secondary dikes, dikes in the second line, were also affected, finally flooding about two-thirds of the late medieval landscape. The flooded zone also isolated the area from its historical hinterland, from which money usually came and decisions were made for repairs. From the rebel side, all possible money for repairs went to the military and was not spent on newly conquered areas of which control remained uncertain. As the area became a frontier between the two warring parties, there was no rush to carry out fast repairs. Besides, nobody could survive in the flooded area. In fact, the vast flooded land which separated the warring parties was gradually considered to be a rather practical solution to avoid any kind of hostile engagement in the field, end quote. Shortly after this, forts were built on either side of the flooded area by both sides, developing into the so-called States-Spanish line. You can imagine the flooded area as being a giant no-man's land between the rebels and the Spanish. This still forms the basis of the modern-day border between the Netherlands and Belgium. In this way, it could be argued, the very foundation of these two modern nation states can be traced back to the medieval use of water
0: in anger. We'll be back after this break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? In a psychological sense, this is the idea that people negotiate with themselves or with some kind of higher power about the way they might change their behavior in order to get a better outcome. This could be ruminating about the past or about the present. If only I had done that, things would have been different. Or if I just do this, everything is going to be okay. The need to repent and the notion that they were being punished for their past decisions fit comfortably with the periodic death and destruction that mass flooding delivered. During the revolt against Spain, however, this image was often flipped on its head in the Calvinist Protestant northern provinces. In the propaganda pamphlets which were published at the time, and in the sermons which were delivered to people in churches across the rebellious provinces... Parallels were often drawn, which linked the Dutch struggle against Spain with the biblical story of Exodus, where Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. In that story, the Israelites escape from the evil Pharaoh's armies under the leadership of Moses, who holds out his staff and parts the waters of the Red Sea, creating a dry passage of safety, with giant walls of water on either side of it. This miracle offered the Israelites the chance to escape to the other side of the sea. Once they reached safety, Moses dropped his staff, the water returned, and Pharaoh and the Egyptian armies were washed away and drowned. The Israelites, God's chosen people, were saved, and thus free to make a nation for themselves. The parallels between the Dutch Revolt and the story of Exodus are obvious, but are also powerful. When William the Silent visited the towns of Brussels and Antwerp, he was greeted by citizens performing tableau vivant, living pictures, basically people acting out little scenes, of Moses saving the Jews. The message for William would have been clear. He was literally Moses, delivering the Dutch people to the promised land, using the waters to drown the evil pharaoh, Philip II. Numerous paintings, pamphlets, songs, and sermons from this time draw that same link. In his epic interpretation of Dutch culture during the 17th century, entitled The Embarrassment of Riches, historian Simon Schama explains it thusly, While the metaphor was a commonplace, it had a particular literal relevance for a founding generation of Netherlanders, 150,000 of whom had physically left the fleshpots of the South crossed formidable water barriers, and reached a land of abundance, end quote. The 150,000 he refers to is the number of people who are estimated to have fled north from Flanders and Brabant after the fall of Antwerp. But this new nation in the north still faced an existential threat from the rising waters. As the land sunk due to peat farming, lakes began to form, and soon enough the landscape of the Netherlands resembled a Swiss cheese. Worryingly, those lakes had the tendency to grow whenever there were big storms, which as we have seen, happened with all too much regularity. Between Amsterdam and Haarlem there were 3 such lakes, the IJsemeer, the Ouderhalammeer and the Speeringmeer. Throughout the 1400s, large storms saw the waters on those lakes whipped up, waves pounding their banks and sucking away the peat around them. Villages on their edges, such as Venep and Nieuwkerk, were washed away, and in 1508, the lakes merged together into one giant lake, known as the Hallammermere. This lake was given the nickname from people who lived around it, Waterwolf. You don't need to have studied Dutch to be able to guess that that literally translates as water wolf. The water wolf became a zoomorphic representation of the menace formed by growing lakes and the sea eating away at the low-lying lands. Luckily for the Dutch, however, an invention was made at the beginning of the 15th century which would help them fight the water wolf. It was the polder windmill. A polder windmill is a windmill which uses wind power to drain water away from low-lying areas using a scheprad, which translates into English as a paddle wheel. Imagine a giant wheel with lots of paddles attached to it which gets pushed by the wind in such a way that it forces the water up but doesn't let it go back down. The first polder windmill was apparently demonstrated in 1408 by two men from Alkmaar named Floris van Alkmaarde and Jan Hrietensohn, and attracted the attention of the Heimrad of Delft, who sent representatives north to see it in action. This invention would prove to be pivotal in the fight against water. From thenceforth, it would be possible to use wind power to take land back from the water on a much larger scale than had ever been done in the past. Remember back to the idea behind bargaining? If I just do this, everything will be okay. If we just drain these lakes, we'll be all right. In the early 17th century, an engineer named Jan Adrianson played a major part in the creation of polders in Holland using the power of wind. Wind! Under his supervision, in 1612, the Beemster Lake, north of Amsterdam, became the first lake in recorded history to be drained using windmills. Jan Adrianzon became so synonymous with emptying water that he adopted the moniker Leichwater, literally meaning empty water. He was also an early proponent of poldering the Haarlem Amir, the lake which had inspired the Waterwolf nickname, though this would not prove possible in his lifetime. The famous Dutch poet Joost van den Vondel wrote a poem about the potential draining of this lake, called "Anden Leo van Holland," to the Lion of Holland, which depicts the heraldic symbol of Holland, the lion, locked in a battle of life or death with the Waterwolf. In his essay, The Dogs of War and the Water Wolf in Holland, Environside, during the late 16th century Dutch Revolt, Professor of History at Princeton University, Emanuel Krijker, translates the poem as follows,
1: Chasing foreign enemies, waving your tail courageously at sea, is futile, if your lungs are consumed, perishing from inside out and with a weak heart you, Sigh and cough terribly, and vomit in large pieces, waves of rotting organ from the throat. What use is your claw seizing everything east and west if you do not bite in the heart this cruel water-wolf that seeks in time to defeat you? O land's lion, rise and awake with a roar! All the Kenemaland peatmen, the old lords of Rhineland, with the Amsterlanders, to make them come to their lion's aid. Enclose with a dike this animal that plagues you, That the prince of the winds flies there on his windmill's wings. The fast prince of winds knows how to chase the water wolf
0: to the sea whence he came. Ever voracious. End quote. Really colourful language there. Imagining the prince of winds chasing the water wolf away to the sea. There is a reason why he is regarded as one of the best Dutch poets ever and has a huge park named after him in Amsterdam. In another poem, written in 1644, Vondel analogized the newly created Beemster polder with the birth of the Cyprian goddess of beauty, Aphrodite. As Aletta Fleischer wrote in her essay titled The Garden Behind the Dyke, Land Reclamation and Dutch Culture in the 17th Century, quote, The nature of the Beemster was transformed into an earthly garden of Eden, where the citizens of Holland could live a wholesome and prosperous life, end quote. Having spent a lot of time going to the Bamster, I wholeheartedly agree with his description. It is awesome. Historians Helmer Helmers and Gert Jansen go further, saying, quote, This awareness of the frailty of peace and the need to protect the vulnerable country was fed continuously in the Dutch Republic by the trope of the Garden of Holland, Another common image in the art of the period that alluded to the Golden Age by presenting the province of Holland or the Republic as a whole as an enclosed garden which needed to be fiercely guarded by a vigilant protector, usually the Dutch stadtholder, against a dangerous and hostile outside world. End quote. Via their relationship with God and promises to be virtuous Christians, Through their negotiations between land and water and the creation of dikes, polders and windmills, in this stage of their relationship with water, the people of the Northern Low Countries saw themselves as having successfully bargained for a divinely ordained paradise.
1: Traditionally, in this outdated psychological process or approach, When bargaining fails, then depression follows. Several centuries of leveraging technology and national pride against the rising tide and the ferocious water wolf saw the frequency of storm surge floods from the sea decrease, although river flooding would remain periodic. In the 18th century, there were just two storm surge floods, and the second of these, the Christmas Day flood of 1717, would be the last one in the Low Countries for more than 200 years. Although there were serious dike breaches in 1820 and 1825, while two surges caused by hurricanes threatened Amsterdam and flooded Leiden in 1836. It was this last event that compelled people to finally tame the original water wolf. Yes, after centuries of discussion about it, the Harlem Meer was finally drained. The centuries of bargaining, however, would come at a high cost, and the reckoning for it eventually arrived on the evening of the 31st of January, 1953. The North Sea Flood, or Vatersnod Ramp, of 1953, happened so recently that the memory and the emotions attached to it are still very much present. Over two days, the 31st of January and the 1st of February, huge swaths of Zeeland, North Brabant and South Holland, as well as parts of Flanders, were submerged beneath waves of two almighty successive storm surges. Meteorological warnings of the incoming high water did not reach enough of the populace, and around 3 a.m., as most people lay in their beds, dikes broke on three separate islands of Zeeland, by the towns of Kroningen, Kortgena and Tonga. Soon after, in Stavonissa, a great chunk of the dike there, 1,800 meters of it in fact, Succumbed at once to the tremendous force and was washed away. Before the night was over, more than 1,300 square kilometers of Dutch land was under water, including 9 percent of its total farmland. At noon of the next day, Sunday, the first of February, those who had survived may have felt a slight reprieve as the tide seemed to be going down. However, as one eyewitness put it, quote, "The worst thing was Sunday afternoon." When high tide came in again. For those who had survived the calamitous night, they now had to deal with the gut wrenching realization of a second surge. This one compounded the destruction wrought by the first and took hundreds of survivors from that first night to their watery graves. We do not want to go into the specific chronology of the two days that saw the waters rising twice and 1,836 people and over 30,000 animals in the Netherlands losing their lives, both at the time and subsequently thereafter. More, we would like to look at the psychological trauma it caused. In the aftermath, tens of thousands of people were evacuated and displaced, including many children. Due to how recent this awful event is, There are mountains of information and sources on it, as well as incredible museums and exhibits that keep emotional memories of it alive. And what this means, relative to all the other great floods of the past, is that we have way more access into the emotional consequences of these events. In a historical sense, what is interesting about the 1953 disaster and the decades following it, is that it happened at a time when the long-term effects of psychological trauma were beginning to be widely recognized and appreciated. Although there is some documentation of people's emotions following past great floods, such as with a song from 1825 that includes the line, "Whole families met their graves, plunged in mourning drear, down into the waves, wife and husband dear. But in the past, there was little or no regard given to the continual psychological effects in the years after a traumatic event. In recent years, GP and medical historian Marianne Mekma has taken advantage of the recency of the 1953 flood to cast more light on how such experiences cause prolonged individual trauma. Meekmer has pointedly asked the question whether we must acknowledge that there was and still is a post-flood trauma from the events of 1953. Having worked with war and disaster victims suffering PTSD, which was not a recognized or diagnosed disorder in 1953, she has said, quote, I always found that people were at risk of mental damage, especially after the evacuation, being snatched from the familiar environment, and no fewer than 80,000 people were evacuated in 1953, end quote. This last number, by the way, has been calculated varyingly elsewhere at between 70 and 100,000. In 1953, there was simply not the social, medical, academic, or cultural understanding for this kind of trauma to be processed properly, and many victims experienced prolonged effects amidst a so-called Zweichkultur, or culture of silence, thereafter. Makema tells us that, quote, In the 50s, there was one psychiatrist in Zeeland. The actual complaints were barely mentioned. In Stafanissa, it was spoken of as a storm neurosis end quote this latter term storm neurosis was actually first used publicly in 1974 when a starvinist doctor employed it to describe the many ongoing conditions of those who had suffered the emergency it was only in the 1990s though that the general culture had developed enough for stories to start emerging into a safer space for many people who had been children during the disaster, they had long held their experiences and ongoing trauma close to their chests. Dick Sis was one such child. As a six-year-old, he and his family had survived the first flood on the Saturday evening, but when the second surge occurred on Sunday, he watched seven of his family members, including both parents and a sister, be swept away to their demise. Afterwards. He and one surviving sister were taken to a foster family in Aymaldon, where they stayed for 18 months. For the next four decades, he, like the countless others who had also undergone this horror, had to process his aggrievement silently and only inside his head, suffering acute insomnia throughout. It was only during the 40-year memorial service of the flood that he was able to talk openly about it. Quote, I wanted to talk about it earlier but that was cut down. It was just not talked about. You had to carry on through. End quote. Since then, Sis has confronted the psychological impact of the flood, even coming to work at one of the flood museums as a guide, where he was able to talk about it openly. Of this, he said, quote, that feels good. It's a relief to talk about. End quote. In 2018, another victim, Joop van den Berg, who had also been six years old at the time, brought his experience of post-flood trauma to light in another public sphere, on a radio program called Deseo Comma. Speaking about the hours that he sat, shivering on a roof with naught but a sodden cloth to uselessly shield him from the elements, he said, quote, You don't know what's going to happen. That makes a huge impression on a six-year-old boy. End quote. Yeah, I bet. The first immediate physical impact was that it made him extremely sick. He was sent to a hospital in the south of Zeeland where he was confined for weeks. After this came the ongoing psychological damage. Yop was thereafter sent to a strange environment, being placed in a care home in nordwijk on During the nine months there, he was permitted to see his mother on one day per month, and with no regard to his being a flood victim and whether he maybe carried a fear of water as a result, he was forced to shower every day. Against his will. Quote, You knew you had to take a shower every day. You could scream and scream, but it was not taken into account. End quote. These are just two of the thousands of stories involved with the North Sea flood of 53. From a historical sense, there is so much value in how much source material remains to convey the shock and horror that those two days brought, as well as the lingering effects that remain for years afterwards. The 1953 flood gives us not only video and recordings of eyewitnesses, but the decades since have also seen a huge growth in the study and understanding of human psychology. We can still apply some of that understanding to people of the past, even if we do not live with the same worldviews or have anywhere near the same level of access to their direct emotional experiences. While we do not have so much information about all the other floods in low Country’s history, and while it would be a mistake to compare modern emotional reactions with those of different eras as like for like, it is pretty easy to argue that any person at any time and living in any culture would feel traumatically affected by giant waves of seawater barreling down the street and wiping out their house, town, family, and everything they know and that is the depressive part of the low country's long-standing and abusive relationship with water. Literally hundreds of thousands of people have, over the centuries, had to bottle up their emotions, their distress, their insomnia, their horrific recurring dreams, and their prevalent fear of returning floods, and had to endure these experiences while living in a culture of either blaming themselves for God having brought high water upon them, or simply have not spoken about the trauma. Fortunately, after the 1953 flood, this began to change, albeit not soon enough for the likes of Dick Seese and Joop van den Berg. Hopefully, we do not have to go through another such event to see whether this depressive tendency still remains below the surface.
0: So, having gone through denial, anger, bargaining and depression, the final step in the process is acceptance. Immediately after the flood disaster in 1953, a momentous effort began to repair the damage which had been wrought by the flooding waters. On the day of the disaster, the 1st of February, sandbagging efforts had been carried out to raise and strengthen various dikes, and just four days later, work had begun resealing breached inner dikes. An army of around 3,500 people was organised, which included military personnel from the Netherlands, France and the United States, as well as called up workers and volunteers. These people began working huge shifts to repair the damage as quickly as possible. The unmitigated disaster, which followed only eight years after the deprivations of war had ended, was a sharp reminder of the constant threat under which people of the Low Countries lived. It was an important moment for the moulding of a modern national identity, and this was driven by the monarch, Queen Juliana, when she visited the area and met with the victims, becoming a symbol of national solidarity in the wake of the disaster. In a speech given by Juliana on the 8th of February, she said, The breach of the dykes evoked a springtide of compassion for each other. The unity of wartime was ready again. This part of our people has risen above all divisions and compromises of society. We all feel the prosperity of working together again in the pursuit of one great cause, and in our enthusiasm we work on, not minding whether we grow weary of charity, not minding what we deny ourselves. If soon the heaviest blow is absorbed, and normal life will again demand a large part of our attention, Then I hope that with tough perseverance, we accomplish the recovery and reconstruction in the same spirit, with our solidarity in the eye and visible to everyone. God calls to our resilience and to our trust in him. This suffering leads to only one outcome, both for the dead and for the living, and that is, to the mercy of God and where it works in man. Wherever there is suffering, blessing is near." This call from the monarch for widespread compassion and help from the entire nation was echoed throughout the media. Every Saturday night for the next two months, a radio program was broadcast to raise money for disaster relief. A song was sung which had the lines Bursen open, Diken dicht, meaning something along the lines of Wallets open, dykes closed. This radio show was able to raise over 5 million guilders in disaster relief. In total, it is estimated that about 138 million guilders was raised by various charity organisations in the aftermath, which is the equivalent of about 500 million euros in today's money, which is a lot. In November 1953, the final hole was closed in the Dykes of Zeeland. This remarkable effort aptly demonstrates why the motto of Zeeland is Lactor et Emergo I struggle and emerge. With the benefit of modern technology and analytical methods, a committee was set up immediately to investigate and understand exactly where, how, and why the dikes broke and what could be done in the future to prevent it happening again. The resulting plan they presented would become the Delta Works an incredible flood protection system that was begun in 1954 and took over 40 years to complete, being officially finished in 1997. It involved the building of three locks, six dams and storm surge barriers, all of them massive, that can open and close according to what the rivers and sea are doing. Essentially, the idea was to drastically shorten the length of exposed coast. The motto of this project was, The shorter the coast, the easier the defence. This was a huge success. Before the construction, the chances of a storm similar to the one that happened in '53 was rated as about once in every 300 years. But since the Delta Works has been built, that's been reduced to one in every 4,000 years. The projects defending the Rundstad, the area which hosts the biggest cities in the Netherlands where half the population lives, is protected in such a way that it has an acceptable flooding risk of once every 10,000 years. After another storm surge flooded the Skelt region in Flanders in 1976, an equivalent plan was developed there in 1977, known as the Sigma Plan, which had similar aims to the Delta Works. During the construction of the Delta Works, changes had to be made to the original plan, in these changes, we see a cultural shift towards acceptance of the collective flood-prone condition. Firstly, in the original plan, the waters around Zeeland were going to be turned into a freshwater lake. Environmental protesters, rightfully arguing that this would kill the many saltwater ecosystems that abounded below this surface, succeeded in having that part of the plan amended, so that the Ostershelder storm barrier was built containing 62 openings, each of 40 metres length. These remain open so as to continue letting the salt water flow in, but they can be shut off in times of threatening sea surge. The original Sigma Plan in Flanders had also called for a huge storm surge barrier to be built at Osterville, a little bit north of Antwerp. Similarly to how the Delta Plan was changed, so too was this barrier never built, after social cost-benefit analyses of the plan showed that a similar reduction in risk could be achieved by building more controlled flood areas and smaller barriers in different tributaries, as a result, rather than destroying ecosystems, once it has been finally completed, the Sigma plan will have created over 14,000 hectares of new habitats in tidal wetland areas in the river mouths where fresh water and salt water intermingle. Today, these areas have animals like beavers and otters, which wouldn't have been found there otherwise. In the entire assessment leading up to these projects, it was determined that there was a higher priority to defend seawater rather than river water. This makes sense since the freshwater has less impact on the agricultural land. In 1995, after most of the delta works had been completed, but at the same time of year as the 53 disaster, the end of January and the beginning of February, persistent rainfall saw the water wolf rise once again. German towns experienced it first, as the mighty Rhine River began to swell before breaking its banks, the water level rising over two metres in one day. Cologne's streets became submerged. At Lobit, where the Rhine runs across the Netherlands border, it was measured at 16.63 metres above the standard mean sea level. So on the 31st of January, exactly 42 years after the dikes broke in Zeeland, the decision was made to evacuate the towns and areas most at risk, with over 150,000 people in total being moved to safety. One witness recounted how he and a friend walked over the border to a pub in Germany, where the water level was the same, but nobody was panicking or being evacuated. I guess centuries of familiarity with the water wolf's wrath meant that, even with all their fancy technology, the Dutch were taking their vulnerability seriously. After these floods, a new plan was developed to determine how to best deal with high water levels in Dutch rivers. The resulting policy, known as Room for the River, is a combination of projects in 30 different locations and it takes into account lessons learned throughout the long history of water management in the region. Rather than fight the water, this plan seems to invite the water. Instead of just building dikes higher and stronger, room was made in the floodplains along the rivers for the water to flow into during periods of high water volume. Eight measures were developed which would achieve this aim. These were the lowering of groins, which I know sounds dirty, but a groin is actually a perpendicular structure which sticks from a riverbank into the water to control its flow, so get your mind out of the gutter. Deepening the channels, removing other obstacles like bridges in certain locations, lowering floodplains, moving back dikes locally and on a large scale, making retention reservoirs and reducing lateral inflow. All of these measures together basically allow the water level to be monitored and controlled so that as the climate changes and large storms become more common throughout the continent, all the water which comes down those rivers is given somewhere to go that isn't people's bedrooms. The value of this project was demonstrated during huge rain events in July 2021, when the volume of water discharged through the Meuse River system was even higher than in 1995. Over 200 people were killed in flooding in Germany and Belgium, but because of the room for the river projects which had already been carried out in the Netherlands, the damage in that country was on a much smaller scale and no lives were lost. As evidenced by this recent case, it seems clear that after a millennium of emotional and physical engagement with water, the collective mindset of the Netherlands has shifted to we need to accept this water and put it somewhere.
1: Throughout this episode, we have been processing the trauma of large-scale flood events which have impacted the Low Countries throughout history. We looked at their early denial of the high tide in the forms of dikes and dwelling mounds, their angry use of their low-lying condition, turning the tides against their enemies, their bargaining against being flooded, promising themselves and God that their good behavior would be their moral dike all the while carrying out negotiations between land and water as they moved from stopping the water wolf to taking land back from it. Depression has hit hard, however, with so much emotional trauma lost to history without having been confronted or healed. We looked at how the occurrence of the 1953 flood has allowed the psychological impact of flooding to finally be recognized. And lastly, having been through all that, We've seen how the peoples of the Low Countries have developed ways of accepting their chronic condition. That the water is coming. It is not going to not come. So we'd better adapt ourselves to it and put it somewhere safe. Acceptance of the fact that disasters will happen has become ingrained into the psyche of the modern and diverse societies that abide here. And the resilience which this has built has helped to shape the collective identities of these regions today. As the rest of the world begins to deal with the increasingly apparent effects of climate change and rising sea levels, Dutch and Belgian engineering and technical know-how that has been created in this struggle against water here is being exported and implemented around the world. But, as successful as all that might be, perhaps it is the cultural and emotional resilience that is also developed here through the ongoing exposure to traumatic natural events that could be the most valuable commodity the Low Countries has to offer the world.
0: Do you want to know more about Flemish and Dutch history and culture? Visit www.the-low-countries.com This podcast is made by Republic of Amsterdam Radio.